the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the World of Islam podcast. My name is Amin Tais. We continue today discussing Sufism. We focused in the last episode on the early period, roughly the 8th century, which saw the spread of various forms of pietistic attitudes and asceticism in the world of the still-forming religious tradition of Islam. In this episode, we will encounter some developments in the 9th and 10th centuries that will have a great impact on the shaping of the later full-fledged Sufism, or let's say Sufi orientations, because Sufism is a very diverse tradition. The ascetic and pietistic tendencies in the early period seem to have been present across the spectrum. We can witness them among theologians, jurists, muhaddithun, warriors, etc. For example, the Hanbali circle in Baghdad, from which would spring later the Hanbali school of law, al-Madhab al-Hanbali, appears to have been an ascetic circle with a focus on hadith as springboard. But other ascetic communities would slowly take a different direction by adding a mystical aspect to their worldviews and practices. One concept that is of importance here is that of ma'rifa, which literally means knowing. But it is a deeper form of knowledge. Ma'rifa, in this context, came to be distinguished from ilm, which also means knowledge. The alim, the one who has ilm, is knowledgeable about the inherited religious texts. The arif, by contrast, the one who has ma'rifa, goes beyond the surface of the texts. He has an intuitive form of knowledge that is much deeper than that of the alim who is not initiated to the deep spiritual world of the arifun. In other words, ma'rifa draws the person much closer to God than ordinary knowledge of religious texts. So close, in fact, that one can reach a state of complete annihilation in God. In Arabic, al-fana'. This notion of al-fana' was first formulated in the Islamic context, as far as the sources can allow us to see, by a mystic, a famous mystic, by the name of Bayezid Bistami, who died in 875, from the northern Persian town of Bistam. In his conception, annihilation in divinity means that the mystic, who experiences an ecstatic state, loses the ego when encountering God directly, becoming one with him, which led Bastami to utter such phrases as Subhani, glory to me, a Quranic phrase describing God and commonly used by Muslims until today whenever 
the name of God is uttered. Allah subhanahu, God, glory be to him. But not all those on the mystical path were willing to utter such words in public, particularly in settings that created serious frictions with the fuqaha, the jurists, and the mutakallimun, the theologians. Al-Junaid of Baghdad, who died in 910, and who is said to have translated from Persian to Arabic some of Bastami's famous utterances, and to have commented on them, had to play some linguistic gymnastics to avoid raising the ire of the legal scholars and the muhaddithun in the Abbasid capital. Al-Junaid developed the notion of baqa, subsistence, as a superior state to fana or annihilation, so that after the mystic reaches the intoxicated and controllable encounter with God, he goes back to the sober state of baqa as his now more spiritually nourished normal self. Al-Junaid and other like him strove not to divulge to the non-initiated any conceptions or ideas that the latter would not understand. They're described as the sober mystics, in contrast to those like Bastami who are presented in many sources as intoxicated mystics or ecstatic mystics. The most famous among these ecstatic mystics is Al-Hallaj, who died in 922, also born in Persia, but in the province of Fars. Al-Hallaj was a great preacher who, after having had strong training in traditional religious sciences and having been initiated to mystical practices, was willing to preach publicly about his mystical experiences, and he called upon people to find God in their hearts. A famous report describes him as standing at the important mosque of Al-Mansur in Baghdad and controversially claiming, An al-Haq, I am the truth. Truth being one of the names of God in the Islamic tradition. Al-Hallaj also emphasized the interior goals of the common rituals like prayer and pilgrimage, at the expense, in the eyes of his opponents, of the outer performance of prescribed rituals. Al-Hallaj would ultimately be tried and executed in Baghdad by the authorities citing his heretic beliefs. But it is misleading to see the fate of Al-Hallaj as simply the result of a religious battle. Rather, it is important to note that Al-Hallaj was a threat at many levels. He established a large popular following around his ideas and teachings, thus threatening the religious authority of the ulama, the religious scholars, but he also constantly and publicly called for social justice. Even more so, earlier in his life, he was seen as a supporter of the so-called Zenj Rebellion, a rebellion of black slaves 
who rose in protest against their conditions in plantations in the south of Iraq. Another element is that Al-Hallaj gained some followers within the Abbasid royal court, and with that also enemies among other courtiers. Finally, at the larger political level, this is a period that saw the rise of various external threats to the Abbasid rule, particularly from Shiite movements. It is then no surprise that Al-Hallaj was accused in his trial to be secretly an Ismaili Shiite. In later Sufi writings, Al-Hallaj is remembered as the martyr of love. Thank you for listening. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you.